Hey guys, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast called Dietetics After Dark, where true crime meets food. In each episode, hosts Sarah and Becca use their background in nutrition and criminology to discuss fascinating food-related scandals with an evidence-based lens. I gotta tell you, I did not realize how much true crime was involved in the food industry, but after listening to some of their episodes, I can tell you that there is a lot, and these ladies leave no stone unturned in their coverage. But don't take it from me. Check out this clip, and remember, if you love food, as much as you love mystery, then you are going to love Dietetics After Dark. Have you ever wondered what the real story is behind those scandalous food headlines? Every day we are bombarded with marketing messages and claims about what we should eat and who we should trust. As consumers, it can be challenging and time-consuming to dive into the research and find out what's really going on. And that's where we come in. Welcome to Dietetics After Dark, the podcast where true crime meets food. I'm Sarah. And I'm Becca. And each week we use our backgrounds in nutrition and criminology to uncover the stories behind nutrition and food-related scandal, crime, and fraud. We cover everything from organic food fraud and the European horse meat scandal to the McDonald's hot coffee lawsuit and Mexican avocado cartels. If there's scandal and it has anything to do with the food industry, you can bet it's on our radar. Diving into each story, we uncover the science behind nutrition myths, we debunk misinformation within the food industry, and we offer an evidence-based take on what actually happened. Should you really be scared of those ingredients? What do our food labels actually mean? And so much more. So if you love food as much as you love a good mystery, you've come to the right place. Grab a snack get cozy, and get ready to dive into the weird and wonderful world of dietetics after dark. I would want to go by Firing Squad. I still think that's the best. They got a bunch of guys shooting at me. They don't know which one of them was the one to hit me with it, and then I'm out like that. But I mean, hopefully no one executes me. <laughs> I d- hopefully I don't do anything to deserve that. So if Grace <laughs> is sentenced to death, just keep that in mind, please. Thank you. Hi, everyone. I'm Bolton. And I'm Grace. And welcome to Crime Scenes, a true crime movie podcast. All right, guys, so we are starting part two of our recap of In Cold Blood. If you have not listened to part one of our recap of In Cold Blood, stop, go back to the last episode and start from there or else none of this is going to make any sense because we're starting in the middle of the movie. If you've already listened to part one and you're coming back for part two of In Cold Blood, hello, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Hopefully, if you're coming back for part two, that means that you like what you're listening to. So we would really, really love it if you would go to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating and a nice review. That is how we get to spread the word about the podcast. So we would really, really appreciate it. And you can also go to our website, crimescenespodcast.com, or any of our social medias. We have Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and we are at Crime Scenes Pod on all of those. And you can make a request, show us some support by buying some merch or making a donation through Buy Me a Coffee, or you can see what's coming up next and what episodes we're doing. All right, I will stop talking, and now let's get into part two of In Cold Blood. In the heart of America, in a small rural community, occurred a crime which shocked the entire nation. A book about this crime by Truman Capote became a worldwide bestseller. Now a motion picture brings this book to the screen. 
in cold blood. Just so we're all on the same page, here's a little bit of a summary about what was going on where we left off in the last episode. After the Clutters were murdered, a reward was offered to anyone that could give any information about who potentially could have committed this crime. Mm -hmm. The investigators at the KBI, or Kansas Bureau of Investigation, were getting calls from all over the place. But one call that they got that really perked up their ears was actually from a man that was in prison, and he went by the name of Floyd Wells. Now, the reason that what Floyd Wells had to say was so interesting compared to everything else that was coming into the KBI was because he was telling the KBI that... He actually used to work on Mr. Clutter's farm, and that was true. That checked out. Right. So some KBI investigators went down to interview Floyd Wells, and here is what he told them specifically. After Floyd Wells worked for Mr. Clutter and then went to prison, he was cellmates with a guy named Dick Hickok. And we, the viewer, know this is one of our murderers. Right. One day when they were sitting in their cell, they were talking about jobs that they'd had in the past. And Floyd mentioned that he worked for a man named Mr. Clutter on a farm and that this guy, Mr. Clutter, was very wealthy. He said specifically that Mr. Clutter had told him at some point that he had spent as much as $10,000 a week in order to operate this farm. Floyd Wells says this specific thing to Dick Hickok. And Dick Hickok took that to mean that at any point on that farm, Mr. Clutter had $10,000 there. Floyd Wells then told the investigators that after he told Dick this specific information about Mr. Clutter spending $10,000 a week, Dick started asking a lot of detailed questions like where exactly the farm was, how long it took to get there, if there was a safe in the house where this cash would be kept, and where in the house it would be kept. And Floyd Wells gave him as much information as he knew. Now, one thing we also learned last time in the movie is that this whole idea that Mr. Clutter had a cash box full of cash on his farm in his house somewhere. That was a pretty widespread myth about Kansas farmers. It wasn't true. And Floyd Wells' assumption that it was true was also inaccurate. But Dick believed it. And he told Floyd Wells while they were in jail that when he got out, he was going to go find this farm, the Clutter farm. He was going to rob it. He was going to bring his friend Perry Smith with him. And he said him by name. And he said that they were going to leave no witnesses. If there were any witnesses, they were going to kill them. After Floyd Wells tells the KBI investigators this information, the KBI investigators finally have two potential leads to this crime. And when they look up Dick and Perry, they see that they also have a bunch of parole violations, which included not keeping a job, not reporting to parole, and even leaving the state. Additionally, there was also pretty good evidence that both of them were involved in buying a bunch of stuff with bad checks and then selling it off or pawning it off to make money. And we saw in the last episode that that is exactly what Dick and Perry were doing. They were trying to make some cash before they went down to Mexico. Then ultimately, they did did, in fact, go down to Mexico. Once the KBI learns this information about Dick and Perry, both from Floyd Wells and in terms of their parole status, they decide that they are going to issue warrants for both of them for parole violations and for the issuance of bad checks. They do not issue any type of warrant for either one of them for murder. And the movie makes it seem like the reason they're not going to put one out for murder is because they're afraid that if Dick and Perry find out about a murder warrant, they're going to try to flee the country. That was not the case. The reason that they did not put a murder warrant out was because at that point, they still really didn't have enough. Really, all they have tying these guys to this murder at this point is this story from Floyd Wells. So they're going to need to be able to tie them some other way. But at least by putting these other warrants out, it would get them in custody and would make it where they could sit down and talk to them. 
Right. Another thing about this second part of the movie is that now that the investigators have the names of Dick and Perry as their main suspects, we're going to see them trying to find Dick and Perry. Obviously, they put these warrants out, but more importantly, they're going to be going around during the course of their investigation and learning more about them. And the movie is going to give us a lot of information, but it's not going to give it to us in the way that it is presented in the book. In other words, it's going to be presented in a different order or it's going to be based on fictional conversations that happen between different people. And I will point those out as we go. But really, I think the reason that they did this was because if it was presented how it was in real life, it would be a lot of boring courtroom hearings or attorneys in their offices. It just wouldn't be as good to watch. So I actually appreciate that. It also allows you to get a little bit better of a sense of Dick and Perry's background, I think. Yeah. So the first place that the KBI is going to go to find out more about Dick and Perry and possibly find them is to their families. And the first person they go see is Tex Smith. This is Perry Smith's dad. Mr. Tex Smith. Cops out. Kansas Bureau of Investigation. Now, this did not actually happen in real life. What actually happened was Harold Nye and Al Dewey, the two investigators from the KBI, searched as far as Nevada for Tex Smith, and they never did find him, but they did get some information from a post office in Nevada. The post office workers confirmed that they did know a guy named Tex Smith. He was also known as the Lone Wolf, that he frequently would move around and he would change his forwarding address from that post office. And they also said that his most recent forwarding address was to Circle City, Alaska, and they had not seen him since last August, so about four months. Now, in the movie, the KBI investigators find Tex Smith in a junkyard where he's staying in his trailer. They go in and talk to him, and Tex Smith had not seen Perry in years and didn't even realize it. When did you see him last? Oh, a couple of years ago. In prison? I'm just fixing to make some grub. You want some meats? He was in for three and a half years. He's been out parole for six months. Well, then I guess I haven't seen him five or six years. And as the investigators continue talking to Mr. Smith, he doesn't say it outright, but it's clear that Tex Smith is reminiscing on his time with Perry growing up, and he clearly feels guilty about it, that he was not the best father that he could have been. You just asked Perry if I wasn't a good father to him. I always shared, always. When I eat, he eats. You just tell Perry that when I die, all my insurance goes to him. And some of the things that we learned is that Perry's parents did have a good marriage at first. They were on the rodeo circuit, but ultimately his mother became a very bad alcoholic. And by all accounts, this drinking led to some extramarital affairs. And when his father found out, that led to domestic violence that the kids witnessed. Ultimately, his mother would leave his dad and take all the kids, but Perry would run away and go back to his father. But even then, sometimes his father couldn't keep him. He would go to his mother. His mother wasn't able to handle him. And then he would jump into either foster homes or schools where we already learned that he was beaten horribly by these nuns. So essentially what we get out of seeing Perry's dad is that his dad has never really been able to take care of him. He had a very hard time growing up. He didn't really have a solid family life, and he saw a lot of hardship and a lot of violence in his family. Mm -hmm. 
Now, the reality was after the investigators went to that post office in Nevada, they actually spoke to Perry Smith's sister, and she was able to give them a lot of information about their background and Perry's background specifically growing up. And instead of the movie just showing the investigators talking to the sister, giving them all this information, they have the investigators talking to the father. And I think the reason that they do this is from this point on in the movie, Perry's father is going to be a symbol or a metaphor or whatever for why Perry has done what he's done and why he's become what he's become. But the sister will come back into play in a very important way. Yeah. So after the investigators realize that they're probably not going to find any evidence through Tech Smith, they leave and we go to the next scene and it is Dick and Perry and they're in Mexico. Now, in the movie, Perry is loving Mexico. He is getting ready to go on this treasure hunt with the map that he had earlier in the movie. He's a shoeshine boy. Well... He's got a cousin in Yucatan, a fisherman, and he's got a powerboat. So? So, we drive to Yucatan, we sell the car, buy us a load of deep-sea diving gear, and pow, we hit the Cortez jackpot. $60 million in Spanish gold. Dick, on the other hand, is hating it. And part of the reason that Dick hates it in the movie is that he feels bad for leaving his parents in the U.S. with all of those hot checks that he spent. He's afraid that they're going to be held responsible for that. This was not so much true, but it was true that Dick was getting concerned that they were running out of money in Mexico. And he was getting irritated with Perry for the fact that he kind of had this champagne taste on a beer budget. He was spending a lot of money and not thinking about it. And ultimately, in the movie, what Dick says is, I've had it. You, your maps, fishing boats, buried treasures, all of it, everything. Stop jacking off. There ain't any caskets of gold, no buried treasure. And even if there was, hell boy, you can't even swim. Get that shitty box and do something with it. Get rid of it or mail it to the U.S. or something. But we are leaving here. We're selling the car. We're selling any last things we have to get some money. We're going back into the U.S. and we're going to hitchhike, get some jobs. We're going to work until we make enough money. And then we are going to leave the U.S. and go to Brazil where we cannot be extradited. Yeah. Now, remember, Perry has had this box since the beginning of the movie that he carries like all this memorabilia in. He still has that box, and that's the box that Dick is referring to when he's telling him to ship his stuff back to the U.S. Mm-hmm. And Perry says, okay, I'll go ahead and ship it. And that is something to remember. This box is still not going away. Right. The other thing you may see is that Perry is still too scared to go out on his own without Dick. He is afraid that if they separate, if one of them gets caught, then they're going to turn on the other one. So Perry is not ready to leave him. And both in the book and the movie, there's a big theme of interdependence between the two throughout. Yeah. Also, they don't realize it, but this is the worst thing they could possibly do because they don't know it, but we do, that they now have warrants out for them. Yeah. So now we get a really interesting scene where the KPI head investigator, Al Dewey, and reporter Bill Jensen are talking about the case together. And if you remember, Bill Jensen is the fictionalized character that is supposed to sort of be like Truman Capote going around the town in Holcomb, talking to the different citizens, talking to the investigators, and writing a story about 
about the Holcomb murders. And what's interesting about this scene is not so much that he's talking to Al Dewey, because that was actually something that Truman Capote did quite a lot. In fact, that's how he got a lot of information, probably more than he should have. But it's the specific aspect of the case that they're discussing. Bill Jensen is telling Al Dewey about a study that was done by a psychiatrist by the name of Dr. Joseph Statton at the Menager Clinic in Topeka, Kansas. And this study was entitled Murder Without Apparent Motive, a Study in Personality Disorganization. And what the study was about was essentially what it sounds like. It was trying to determine why certain people will commit murder when they have no real motive to do so. And clearly, we've been talking about how the question of why these two men committed this murder was a big topic because for a long time, they couldn't find any connection. And this case study was real and it was utilized by the defense. And in fact, the author of this case study actually contacted the defense and tried to provide them support as well. But this was something that was dealt with during the pretrial and trial stage of Dick and Perry's case after they had been arrested and it was mainly done by their lawyers and their psychiatrist that was evaluating them. It had very little to do with Al Dewey or Bill Jensen or who would be Truman Capote. Basically, what the movie has done is it has taken this pretrial and trial topic and it's moved it up in the timeline so that we see two laypersons, Al Dewey and Bill Jensen, discussing it rather than seeing it discussed by attorneys or seeing it discussed in a courtroom. And I think the reason that they do that is basically for it to be easier to understand. Now, in reality, this case study that was used by the defense was not only used to help answer the question of why somebody would commit such a horrendous murder like this with no motive, but it was also used to address the very complex issue of insanity or temporary insanity as an affirmative defense. And the movie does not get into the topic of an insanity defense pretty much at all. So what I'm going to do is later in the movie, when we get to the trial aspect, I am going to talk about the insanity defense a little more and just focus more on that why question and the findings of the study here. The study begins by explaining that historically courts have assessed criminal responsibility to murderers by categorizing them into two groups. You've got your people who are sane and they have killed as a result of rational motivation, so like for personal gain, and you've got your insane and those are people that kill due to irrational motivation like hallucinations or delusions or mental illness, something like that. And what this study has found is that there's actually a small group of killers or murderers that appear rational, coherent, controlled, but they commit homicidal acts that are bizarre, apparently senseless, and they seem to even puzzle the killers themselves. They didn't hate their victims. They didn't even know them. They felt no guilt about their crime and got nothing out of it. They don't really understand why they killed their victims. They're relatively unknown to them. A lot of times when these murderers commit these acts, they lapse into a dreamlike dissociative state. And additionally, the study found that these people that all committed these senseless acts of murder also had some other commonalities, particularly with how they viewed themselves and some aspects of their past. They all felt physically inferior and uh, sexually inadequate. Their childhood was violent, or one parent was missing, or someone else had raised them. They couldn't distinguish between fantasy and reality. 
Now, this isn't in the movie, but it is in the book that the author of this study, Dr. Satan, he believed, based on the information that he gathered from the psychiatrist that examined Dick and Perry, that at least Perry represented this type of murderer, this person that commits senseless murder. And he would need more information to determine if Dick would qualify as this also. And it makes sense when you think about it, because Perry grew up in a very violent childhood. One of the common similarities is that adult women were threatening to him, and he was certainly threatened by the nuns and adult women that he grew up with. He had a poor image of himself, especially when it came to being physically inferior because of his legs and the car accident that he was in. Another common similarity is severe emotional deprivation early in life, and with his parents splitting up so early and him being placed back and forth between his mother and his father and some orphanages, that can certainly be considered. And finally, I would argue, and some people may not agree with me on this, this is just me seeing the movie a million times, that the moments in the movie where we see Perry kind of getting lost in his own thoughts, thinking back to how great his childhood was with his siblings and both of his parents, that's him kind of losing the distinction between fantasy and reality and him forgetting that his childhood was not good. And we hear things like how he had to call on the yellow bird. And yes, that's symbolism in the movie. But was he really seeing something during those moments? I sort of think that that is an example of the movie kind of trying to either speak about or show us some of Perry's mental illness. Then there was one last thing that the author of the study, Dr. Satan, noticed about Dick and Perry specifically. And it doesn't have so much to do with what the study finds and the consistency with that, but more about their relationship. He believed that neither one of them would have committed this murder without the other and that they both were dependent upon each other in order to do it. And that just goes back to showing the codependency between the two of them throughout this entire experience. Then finally, the scene ends going back to Bill Jensen and Al Dewey talking to each other. And Al Dewey sort of makes a jab at the media, since Jensen is a journalist, by saying... Someday, somebody will explain to me the motive of a newspaper. First, you scream, find the bastards. Till we find them, you want to get us fired. When we find them, you accuse us of brutality. Before we can go into court, you give them a trial by newspaper... When we finally get a conviction, you want to save them by proving they were crazy in the first place. And I don't think the movie was trying to make a jab specifically at the media, but I think they were just making the point to show how complicated the justice system is. Even when we finally found our reason why these people were brutally killed, it turns out that these monsters that did this were created as a result of their own trauma and violence that they never should have been subjected to. Right. So now, after we have this, we get Dick and Perry's final night in Mexico, and it is the worst. Yes. They have no money, but what is Dick doing? Dick (laughs) hires a sex worker, and he comes back with said sex worker as Perry is just trying to pack his stuff. Perry's actually already packed his stuff. He's just sitting in the room Mm -hmm. while Dick and this sex worker just go at it. And at some point, I was just like, Perry, like, you either need to join in or leave, but stop torturing yourself (laughs) sitting here. This is ridiculous. Yeah. Instead, he decides to sit there (laughs) and just, like, relive some childhood trauma. Yeah. And then we get a sad, sad flashback, right? Essentially, he's having flashbacks of his mother bringing men home right in front of all the kids and them all seeing it happen. 
happen. Yeah. Then we see in this flashback his father coming in and the father taking a bottle of liquor and pouring it over her. I seriously thought he was going to light her on fire. I immediately jumped yeah. up and was like, oh my God, he's going to light her on fire. I thought so too. But that doesn't happen. He just pours liquor on her and then beats the crap out of her. Yeah. And we're getting more information through these flashbacks about Perry that point to this senseless murder and why it would have taken place. And it has to do with what has happened in his past rather than his relationship with the clutters. I also, the first time I saw this, I got a little confused and I thought there were just children in their hotel room and I could not. I thought the sex worker brought her kids with her. (laughs) That wasn't what happened. So now after this traumatic night, Dick and Perry have crossed the Mexican border into California and we see them walking on the highway and they are formulating a plan to try and get a hitchhiker to pull over so that they can steal the car from them. All a truck gets us is from here to there. We want a score. One guy with a fat wallet in a fast car with a back seat. I sit beside him. You get in the back. I feed him a few jokes. I say, hey, Perry, pass me a match. That's your signal. Fast, hard, snap. I grab the wheel. And their plan is that Dick is going to sit in the front. Perry's going to sit in the back. Dick is going to be kind of joking with the guy to get him to relax, the driver. And then when he gives Perry the signal, which is for him to say, pass me the cigarettes, then Perry is supposed to basically put the guy in a chokehold with his belt. And then presumably they will just dump the guy or kill the guy and dump the guy out on the highway and take the car. And they get their opportunity to try this out pretty quickly when a young salesman picks them up and... This is a true story, and I swear to God, this guy gets by by the skin of his teeth. He is so lucky that they were not able to do this, and he never even found out about it. He didn't know he was in danger. So what happens is they get picked up by this guy and get in the car, and they start the routine with the jokes. And Dick's telling some stupid jokes, and it seems to be working. I can take you as far as Iowa. Where you boys been? Mexico. No future there. It depends, my boy. I honeymooned in Mexico. You might say that's where I planted the seed of our first child. (laughs) I plowed and planted a few senoritas there myself. And from the moment that they've come up with this plan, Perry does not want to do it. And he doesn't want to do it now. And you can tell that he's nervous. And then the moment comes where Dick says to him, pass me a cigarette or pass me a match. Hey, Perry, (laughs) pass me a match. (laughs) And as they are laughing, you can see that Perry is slowly lifting his arms and he's almost got them over that front seat about to put this belt around this guy's neck. When out of nowhere... Sorry, never turned down a soldier. This might get the boy home for Christmas. Lucky break. (laughs) Practically a goddamn miracle. (laughs) This driver sees a soldier hitchhiking on the side of the road and he slams on the brakes to pick him up, saying that he always picks up soldiers. And him doing this literally saved him from getting robbed, possibly killed. Yeah. Then after we see Dick and Perry's failed first attempt to rob someone and steal their car, we go back to KBI investigator Nye, and he is at Dick Hickok's parents' house, which is also where Dick Hickok lived before he ran away with Perry. And this scene will just break your heart for so many reasons. Now, what makes him do it? A hit out against people. Outstanding athlete in basketball, baseball, football, always made the first team 
He always played to win. Played hard, but clean. When he left without a word, I know he was in trouble again. Now, Mr. and I, I thought if I... Uh, about breaking parole, will he have to go back to prison? Dick was not like Perry in that he came from a broken, violent home. His parents were very good people and they were respected in their community. And Dick was not necessarily a bad kid, but he got in a car wreck where he hit his head, had a bad head injury, and it actually changed his personality quite a bit. That's when he got into stealing and other criminal activities. And pretty much ever since Dick has been in trouble, his parents have been bailing him out. And right now, KBI investigator Nye has not told them that he has a warrant for murder or that he is a suspect in murder because they actually don't have a warrant. If you remember, they don't have enough for a warrant for that right now, but they do have warrants for probation violations and writing all those hot checks. And they are being so cooperative with this investigator. They're letting him look all over their house. And one of the things they see is a shotgun and it matches the type of shotgun that was used to kill the clutters. You do much hunting, Mr. Haycock? Oh, that's uh, his gun, Dick's. And it's so general and they don't have a search warrant, so they can't take it with them. But at least they see that it is there. And Dick's dad does point out that it does belong to Dick. And then finally he leaves and we still see the tragedy in Dick Hickok's parents and that they are hoping that he'll bring him home safe. I hope you find Mr. Nye for his own sake before it's too late. They will love that piece of shit no matter what. And they do. Yeah. Then we go back to Dick and Perry. And the movie at this point is following the book pretty well. And so based on that, they are in Iowa and it's raining really hard. And they've just gone into a shed where there's a car and they've been hitchhiking and getting odd jobs all over the country. And the problem with that is they're not able to make any money that's sustainable for them to eventually get out of the country. And so now that they found this car, Dick is basically saying, that he wants to steal it and that he wants to go to Kansas City where it's kind of his territory and he can write a bunch of hot checks, pawn some stuff off, make some serious money, and then they'll be able to move on from there. Perry is like, you idiot, absolutely not. Kansas City, here we come. You're crazy. I gotta get us some money. How far do you think we could get in a hot car with hot checks? And Dick is not letting off. He even says that he'll go by himself if Perry doesn't want to go. And that freaks Perry out. He does not want them to be separated. And Perry tries to lay down the law by saying they are going to get their stuff in Las Vegas that they shipped from Mexico and they are getting out of the country as soon as possible. And Dick is still saying no, at which point Perry brings up the idea that he could just kill him. I won't go. go. What if I don't? Well then, honey baby, I guess I'll just have to kill you. Yeah, yeah. But right now, we pass a lot of fast hot checks. And this is going to sound terrible, but I was like, yes, Perry, kill Dick. Like, (laughs) just do it. You're already in deep water. He is going to do nothing but fuck you over, but he does not do that. Somehow he is strong enough to kill a family of four, but he is not strong enough to kill Dick. Right. And what's worse for Perry is Dick does not believe this for one second. And it really makes me wonder when, if ever, Dick figured out that Perry had never killed anybody before, because the only reason Dick brought him along to the clutters was because he had heard that he had killed someone. And we as the viewer already know that that's not true. He had never killed anybody. So 
Harry is now having to go along with whatever Dick says, and Dick says they're going to Kansas City and they're going to write some checks. That being said, what Dick doesn't seem to understand is that by writing bad checks all over Kansas City, he is sort of creating a pattern of where he is, and people are going to start reporting that. Now, our friends are here. How do you know? They stole a car in Iowa and bought two tires with a bad check. Where? Right here. Salesman got worried. He wrote down the license. And despite the fact that Dick and Perry attempt to change the license plates to Kansas license plates so the car doesn't look out of place since it was from Iowa, they are now being tracked by the KBI. And they were in Kansas City for a while. One person that reported them was able to give the police a license plate number. Dick even left Perry at a laundromat for several hours and it freaked Perry the hell out before he came and picked him up and got him. But somehow, some way, they managed to slip in and out of Kansas City without being caught by the police. They slipped through. And this is kind of where they drive all over the U.S. They specifically stop in Miami over Christmas, and then they go a few other places, making money where they can make it. And then we get to my favorite little subplot in the entire movie. This is basically (laughs) the one time in this incredibly sad movie where everyone is happy and having a good time and we're promoting recycling. It is the best. So they're driving along one day, and Perry makes Dick stop and pick up a young boy and his grandpa. We sure appreciate this, mister. Get in. Where you headed? California. Graham's got a sister in Needle. He's gonna stay with her. Hear that, Johnny? Yeah. Hear me, Johnny? They actually picked them up in Galveston, Texas, because they had just been doing a job over there. And this grandpa and kid were trying to get to Sweetwater, Texas. In the movie, they tell them that they're trying to go to California. Either way, they start driving west. Mm -hmm. And as they start going, Dick is mad at first. But what he notices is the kid will tell them to stop every once in a while. And he starts picking up soda bottles. And he's like, we've been eating, basically, because of these. Because you can sell the bottles back and make a bunch of money. They're worth three cents a bottle. So... Mister, if you was to drive real slow, we could pick us up some real change. That's what Johnny and me been eating off of. Refund money. So they all start doing it. And it took them an hour to go five miles because they kept stopping and picking up bottles. And they end up stopping at a motel. Now, in the movie, they have made it all the way to Las Vegas, Nevada. In actual reality, they stopped in Fort Worth. And this kid was the savviest little kid I've ever seen. He makes a deal with the people at the motel that he'll give them all these bottles. They'll give him cash. And they end up making about $12. And they split it evenly. Hey, mister. $12.60. 50-50 and the kid and the grandpa part ways with Dick and Perry, and then Dick and Perry keep going on their merry way. Ultimately, Dick and Perry will end up in Las Vegas. In the movie, they're already in Vegas. And you see that they go to pick up this freaking box that Perry has had shipped from Mexico to Las Vegas. They pick it up. They put it in the car and they're driving along. And it is at this point 
both in the movie and the real story, that some police officers noticed the car and they noticed the plates that have been reported stolen and they stopped the car and they realized who they have. And when they did get pulled over, they were kind of at a breaking point in real life. Dick would later tell Capote that he was planning, no matter what, on just leaving and not telling Perry. He could not take it anymore. Like, they both were done with the other one. And they were both so mad normally, they would kind of keep an eye out if they saw any cops and neither one of them was paying attention at this moment. And that's when they get pulled over. So they have finally been found and they are finally taken to jail. Now remember, they are taken to jail on warrants for parole violations and bad checks and that's it. They don't know that they are investigating them for murder. Mm Mm-hmm. So in the next scene, we get both Dick and Perry being taken into separate interrogation rooms and the KBI, all the investigators are coming over and they're going to come talk to them. And we see the investigators standing outside of the interrogation rooms looking through the double mirror window at both Perry and Dick. And you can tell that this is their Super Bowl. And they already have it planned out that investigators Nye and Dunce are going to interrogate Dick and investigator Dewey and Church are going to interrogate Perry. And you're going to notice during these scenes where the investigators are doing the interviews that they're going to jump back and forth between the interrogation with Dick and then the interrogation with Perry a lot. And I really like this part of the movie because you see just how opposite they handle this situation. So we start with Dick. And Dick was actually quite the charmer when he talked to the detectives. You know why we're here, Mr. Hagar? Sir, you can call me Dick. All right, Dick. We understand you've signed the extradition papers. <laughs> yeah, well, what the hell? There's no denying. We broke parole and hung a mile and a half of paper. Oh, yeah. The car. It's stolen. <laughs> That's it. All of it. Okay, if I smoke. Sure. You know, in a way, I'm glad it's over. He had no problem talking to him. He had no problem signing an extradition form to take him back to Kansas. He truly thought that he was just getting arrested for these theft warrants, for the checks, and for his parole violations. Meanwhile, Perry is giving as little information as possible, and their body language is so different. Dick is all over the place with his hands up around his head. He's talking to him. He's smoking. Perry is looking straight at the table, slunched over. He'll tell them what he has to, but he's not going to do anything more. Your parole has a special provision never to return to Kansas. I cried my eyes out. Must have been something important to bring you back. I had to see my sister in Fort Scott. Get some money she was holding for me. Did you get it? She moved away. Where? I don't know. And it's during these interrogations that we learn for the first time about a loosely put together alibi that Dick and Perry had made. And it was mainly for Dick's parents when they were gone the night that they murdered the clutters. So this alibi that Dick and Perry had kind of put together was that Perry was coming down to Kansas to see Dick. And then they both were going to drive together to his sister's house, Perry's sister's house in Fort Scott, where she was holding on to some money for him. And they tell the police that the reason they were trying to get the money is they were thinking about possibly going to Mexico. So the day that Dick picked Perry up from the bus station, remember at the very beginning of the movie, they drove all night to Holcomb. They committed the murders of the clutters. 
And then they were back by the morning. And Dick's parents thought that they were driving over to get money from Perry's sister. Again, and they say it a million and one times that she lived in Fort Scott. Now, obviously, they don't have any money to show for this road trip over to see Perry's sister. So what they are now telling police is that when they got to Fort Scott, they realized that Perry's sister no longer lived there. How far is it from Kansas City to Fort Scott? I don't know. How long did it take you to drive there? One hour? Two? Three? Four? I can't remember. And you'll notice as the interviews continue that the investigators are really harping on the fact that Dick and Perry went to Fort Scott, Kansas, that they went on November 14th and 15th. They're asking them how long it took them to get there. They're asking them what they did once they got there. And then they're asking them what they did when they got back. But they really, really are emphasizing that they went to Fort Scott and they were going to see Perry's sister. Remember what day it was? Saturday. Yeah, I remember now. We got to Fort Scott about 4 p.m. We went right to the post office. Why? Why? To find out where Perry's sister lived. Oh. The guy at the post office said she moved. Left no address and left no money either. Must have been quite a blow. Was a haymaker. Okay? Sure, sure. What'd you do then? Go back to KC. Went prowling. Then, once the investigators are satisfied with their conversations with both Dick and Perry about Fort Scott, they start asking them what they did after they went there. And this is where the similarities in Dick and Perry's stories start to fall apart. Yeah. They both do say that they met up with sex workers and they went to a motel with them, but Perry cannot, for the life of him, remember what the name of the hotel was, where it was, or the name of any of these women. You spent the night with these women and you didn't ask their names? They were just prostitutes. Where'd you take them? I don't remember junk like that. You have to ask Dick. Ultimately, they asked Dick, you know why we have you here. I guess you know why we're really here. You know we wouldn't have come this far just to arrest a couple of two-bit check chiselers. Would we, Dick? Well, I wasn't listening. Are you listening now? Did you ever hear of the clutter murder case? Well, no. Can nobody pin any murder on me? No, sir question was, did you hear about it? Read something about it, maybe. Yeah. And once they see Dick freak out like that at the mention of the clutter's name, they know that it's only going to be a matter of time before he breaks, so they start going in on him. You made three mistakes. Number one, you left a witness, a living witness, who testify in court. There ain't any living witness. Can't be. Nobody can pin any murder on me. And before Dick has a chance to process this possibility that there's somehow a witness to this crime, the investigators let him know that they know his alibi is shit. Saturday, November 14th, you drove to Fort Scott. Yes. You went to the post office. Yes. Get the address of Perry's sister. That's right. Perry Smith has no sister in Fort Scott, never has had. On Saturday afternoon, the post office in Fort Scott is always closed. That is your second mistake. Now, I realize that I have started kind of developing a little bit of a bad habit where at the beginning of an episode, I will point out a very tiny detail and say, hey, see this? Remember this. But... Remember when I said that the investigators had spoken to Perry Smith's sister when they first learned about Dick and Perry? Mm -hmm. This is the only sister that Perry has that is alive. 
And she does not live in Fort Scott, Kansas. She never has. And in fact, when the investigators contacted her to get more information on Perry, she told them, please do not give Perry my address. Do not let him know where I live, which was not Fort Scott, Kansas. And I am scared of him. Now, the movie shortens Dick and Perry's interrogations to just one day each. But in real life, they actually were interrogated over the span of two days. And after the investigators tell Dick that... This alibi is absolutely worthless. They do the closest thing to a mic drop and just tell him, that's all for now. We'll see you later and send him back to his cell. In the movie, they just give him a little bit of a break in the interrogation room. And we go over to see Perry and see how he's holding up. And the investigators in Perry's interview are just getting around to asking Perry if he knows anything about the Clutter family murders. And he's doing a little bit better than Dick. He's not screaming at anybody. But when they tell him that they have a living witness that can prove that he was involved in their murders, then Perry kind of starts to squirm. I never knew anybody by that name. Clutter. He's got a living witness. Well, Perry, do you have any aspirin? They took my aspirin away. And you will notice that this part of the movie, now that both Dick and Perry have been told that the investigators have this living witness, you're kind of wondering to yourself, who is this living witness? Like, I was having to think back in my brain as to who they were talking about. I ultimately think they're talking about Floyd Wells, the guy that was Dick's cellmate in prison that told Dick about the Clutter family, how he used to work there. And this is basically where Dick got this whole idea to go rob the Clutters. But what's interesting is neither the movie or the book ever really tell you who this living witness is. You're kind of left to wonder if that's correct. In the same way, I think that Dick and Perry were wondering, who are they talking about? And in the book, it's really interesting because you sort of see from the perspective of both Dick and Perry as they're thinking about who this living witness could be. And they both have different ideas at different points as to who that is. At one point, Dick thinks that the living witness could be Perry. So the police are trying to turn them on each other. And on the reverse side, there's a point where Perry thinks that the living witness could be Dick. It also occurs to both of them that the police don't have anything and this living witness they're talking about is themselves. Like the police are trying to make Perry be the living witness as they interrogate Perry or Dick the living witness as they interrogate Dick. Perry ultimately realizes that this witness could probably be Floyd Wells, but surprisingly, Dick never really does. But you will notice, and they point this out in the book, that the investigators are saying living witness. They're not saying eyewitness. And I think that that tripped both of them up for a little bit because they were assuming that someone was in the house or something that saw them. But at the end of the day, I do think that they're talking about Floyd Wells as this living witness. And now back to Perry's interview, after they see him squirm when they mention the fact that they have this witness, the investigators decide to bring out the big guns on Perry and they tell him. By the way, you know what tomorrow is? Nancy Crutter's birthday. She would have been 17. And in real life, those were actually the parting words that the investigators had with Perry Smith before they sent him back to his cell. Again, in the movie, it's just a one day interview. So they just leave him sitting in his interrogation room, sweating it out. And really, at that point, Perry was pretty much done talking for a while. Dick, meanwhile, is absolutely losing it. And these investigators know it. <laughs> you guys have got to be stolen. If you had any real proof, real proof is an eyewitness. Fingerprints. As God is my witness, may I burn in hell forever if I ever killed anybody. Careful, boy. 
And it is at this point that the investigators decide Dick is ready to learn what his third mistake was when he and Perry committed these clutter murders. I said you made three mistakes. First, you left a living witness. Second, your alibi won't hold water. And third, coming up. Footprints. Made in the spot where Mr. Clutter was murdered. These are the shoes that made him. Yours. And the investigators have set a couple of things in front of Dick on the table in the interrogation room. And the first thing is a crime scene photo. And it is a photo of some footprints that surrounded Herb Clutter's body when they found him. And if you remember way back when we were talking about the footprints in the first episode, we talked about how there was a very obvious bloody footprint. And then there were also some footprints that could not be seen unless the photographer used a flash on the camera and you could see them in the dust. And this was how the police officers were able to determine that there were actually two killers or two people involved at the clutter murder and not just one. And that big bloody footprint, we the viewer know, that belongs to Perry Smith. But those footprints that can only be seen in that flash, those belong to Dick Hickok. And then this leads to the second thing that the investigators have set on the desk in front of Dick, and it is his shoes. And these shoes match the prints that are found at that crime scene. And the fact that the KBI was able to find these shoes is nothing short of a miracle. The investigators found both these shoes and Perry Smith's shoes in that goddamn box that Perry has been carrying around since the beginning of the movie. When Dick and Perry left Mexico, they shipped all their stuff in that box that Perry carries around to Las Vegas. And five minutes before Dick and Perry were arrested, they had just gone to the post office and picked up the box. If the officer that arrested them had pulled them over even just a few minutes earlier, the investigators would not have this box with both pairs of shoes that match the crime scene and belong to Dick and Perry. Like, this box is Brad Pitt in the movie 7, what's in the box <laughs> level of a big deal. And it is finally at this point that Dick decides that he is going to talk. However, in true Dick fashion, he wants a deal. He is going to throw Perry under the bus, and he didn't kill anybody, according to him. All right, Dick, this time the truth. I don't want to be charged with murder one. I never pulled the trigger. I don't even know what the goddamn hell was happening. It was Barry. He did it. I couldn't stop him. Kill them all. And I just love that it's like the immediate, I'm going to negotiate what you're going to charge me with as I admit to. What is happening? <laughs> yeah. So Dick ends up writing up a full statement where he says that although he was in the clutter house the night that the family was murdered, it was Perry that pulled the trigger on all four individuals. I get the sense that the police don't really believe that. But the problem is Perry has gone completely stonewall. He is not talking at all. And so they try to tell him that Dick has made a statement and the statement says that you killed everybody. And it's almost like Perry doesn't believe them and he still won't talk. He says, let 
me see a statement and then maybe I'll make a statement or say something. And Al Dewey does not want to give Perry Dick's statement because he doesn't want them collaborating on a confession. So they're kind of at a standstill. So what they decide to do is they're actually still in Las Vegas right now at the Las Vegas City Jail. So they decide that they're going to drive both Dick and Perry back to Kansas. And we see them putting Dick and Perry in two separate cars. And Dick is going to drive with two investigators and Perry is going to drive with two investigators. And the investigators that Perry is put with are Al Dewey and Investigator Dunce. And for the first few hours of the drive, Dewey and Dunce are kind of trying the same tactic with Perry. They're trying to tell him that Dick made this statement. He's blaming you for everything. But again, it's like Perry doesn't believe them and he thinks that they're just trying to coax a statement out of him. Hickok swears that he tried to stop you. He was scared that you'd shoot him too. You said you did it. All of it. Sure. Now you'd like me to say he did it. Then Al Dewey decides to use another tactic with Perry. He tells Perry that Dick told them that the reason he brought Perry along was because Perry was a natural-born killer. Basically, Dick told the investigators that Perry had killed a man before. You had nothing to lose. You'd already killed a man in Vegas. Beat him to death with a bicycle chain. And you might remember throughout the movie, there have been references to the fact that Perry had killed someone. He had killed a man in Las Vegas several years ago. And this was not true. And the investigators knew this was not true. They had looked at Perry's records. They had looked up all the records in Las Vegas. Perry had never killed a man. But I think the point of him doing this was to show Perry that Dick really was throwing Perry under the bus. He would do anything to walk, and it includes betraying Perry. And this makes Perry mad. And even in the book, they describe that Perry looked out the back windshield and saw Dick in the other car and that he was talking to the investigators. And it was at that point that Perry decided that he was going to make his own confession and tell the investigators what happened. And he's going to do it while they're in the car driving to Kansas. I never killed anybody. Not before that night. And as Perry begins his statement in the car, the viewer is taken to a flashback and it shows Dick and Perry pulling up to the clutter home on the night of the murders. And we're going to see all of the clutter murders through this flashback. And it is really, really powerful and it's almost hard to watch. Not necessarily because it's really graphically violent. You don't see a lot of the violence that happens, but it's more about like what you don't see. And it's really about the characters. Every member of the clutter family is just this very polite, sweet, person. And it's not clear up until the very moment they're going to get murdered. And when they do, it's so shocking, almost surprising, even though you know what's going to happen. And so you're on pins and needles the entire time. And then once Perry begins, he actually says that when they pulled up to the clutter house, he started wanting to back out. We got there around midnight. This is it. This is it. Let's pull out of here. Now, before it's too late. And this is probably because I've seen this movie too many times and really need to broaden my horizons. But I really see this scene where... Perry is trying to tell Dick, let's leave. He doesn't want to do it. And the previous scene where Perry finally decides he's going to give his own confession after he learns that Dick has told these investigators he's a natural born killer, he's killed someone. That's the only reason I used him for this. 
I see those as bookends to the Dick Perry relationship. And what I mean by that is we've been hearing throughout this movie, and I've said it so many times on the episode, that even psychiatrists believed that neither Dick or Perry would have done this by themselves. And the moment where Perry decided to go into the clutter house instead of leaving is the moment that that interdependency between Dick and Perry began. And it was also the moment that the murder of the clutters was almost inevitable. And it is not until the scene where Perry decides to give his own confession after realizing that Dick has betrayed him that Perry is finally able to break off from this interdependency, which is at this point primarily one-sided, and realize this entire time that he's been telling Dick that they need to stick together in order to not get caught has only made things worse. And if he had never stuck with him, this never would have happened. But unfortunately, Perry decides to go in anyway, despite the feelings that he doesn't want to. And of course, the door is unlocked. They walk right in and go straight to Mr. Clutter's office. And once Dick and Perry got into that office, they actually looked around for quite a while. And then they also looked in the living room in the parlor. And when they still couldn't find this safe, that's when they decided to go wake Mr. Clutter up. Honey, is that you, honey? Who is it? Come with us. No. What? Come with us. Come on. Now, sir, where do you keep that safe? What safe? I don't have any safe. Don't lie to me, you son of a bitch. I know you got a safe. Right here, in this office. And the second they wake Mr. Clutter up, my heart begins to break. He thinks that it's his sickly wife coming into his bedroom, and you hear him call out for her, asking what's wrong. And of course, it's Dick and Perry, and they ask where his safe is. And Dick was a little more scary in real life than in the movie, I think. He started off very charming, almost like a salesman. And when Mr. Clutter said that he didn't have a safe, he didn't know what he was talking about, he suddenly turned and became this terrifying robber that we see in the movie. Perry said in his confession, and it's also in the book, that he believed Mr. Clutter immediately when he said he didn't have a safe. But even despite that, he still helped Dick continue looking. Mr. Clutter even started helping them look for money because he was so polite. $31,000. A rich man like you. You gotta have more money than this. Nothing cash. I can write your check. And then all of a sudden, Perry heard something upstairs. Somebody wake upstairs. My family. The only people upstairs are my wife, my son, and daughter. And investigators at the time believed that it was Nancy Clutter. They think that she might have heard Dick and Perry come into the house and she was trying to hide her watch because they found her watch in a shoe or something. And once they hear this, Mr. Clutter tells them that he has his family upstairs. He has a daughter, a son, and a wife. And Dick is asking, would they have money? And Mr. Clutter is trying to get them to not wake them up, especially his wife, because she's ill and he doesn't want to scare her. But but Dick, I almost think, is in denial at this point, And he says they're going upstairs and they're going to wake him up. So the first person that they wake up is Mrs. Clutter, Bonnie Clutter, Mr. Clutter's wife. It's all right, sweetheart. Don't be afraid. These men, they just want some money. Money? They believe we have money hidden in the safe. 
I told her we didn't. Did didn't I tell you to shut up? It's telling the guys the truth. There isn't any safe. I know goddamn well you got a safe, and you better tell him to find it fast. This part of the movie does a good job of just showing their fear and their confusion. And every time I watch this scene, I just can't help but thinking, I cannot imagine a stranger waking you up in your house in the middle of the night, and they are going on and on about something that makes no sense, and you have no idea what they're talking about. Like, that is what is happening to her. And at this point, Perry is realizing that this whole venture is just a disaster. So he pulls Dick outside in the hall to talk to him. Floyd Wells lied to you. There isn't any safe. And Perry would later say that the reason he pulled Dick out in the hallway to talk to him is because he was trying to get him to give up on this and get the hell out of there. But instead, Dick said that the thing they needed to do was tile the family members up and put them in the bathroom, and then they would get more time to look for the safe. And Perry said that Dick also said that once they were done searching, Dick and Perry should take each member of the Clutter family to a different part of the house and tie them up. And they would cut their throats. And Dick did have a knife with him, along with the shotgun that he brought. And he said they shouldn't shoot them because he was afraid it would make too much noise. And Dick was so amped and excited at this moment that Perry claimed that there was just no way to argue with him. So then Perry took Mr. and Mrs. Clutter and put them in the bathroom and tied up their hands and feet. Then both Dick and Perry went to Kenyon Clutter's room, the sun, and he was actually already awake staring at the ceiling. I don't think he knew what to do. And they had him get up and put a robe on. And it was at that point that Kenyon was moving too slow for Dick's liking. So he punched him in the head. Then they took him to the bathroom and tied up his hands and feet. And as they were doing this, Nancy Clutter actually walked out of her bedroom like she didn't know what was going on. So Dick took her and shoved her into the bathroom. Then Dick stood by the bathroom door while Perry searched all throughout the house for any money that he could find. Obviously, there was no safe and Perry knew that, but he was just looking for cash or anything. Like we said in the last episode, Herb Clutter always used a check when buying anything. So after Perry found $43 and a clock radio, they decided that they had searched everywhere they possibly could. So at this point, Dick said they needed to take each member of the Clutter family to a different part of the house. First, Harry took Mr. Clutter and Kenyon and untied their feet and walked them down to the basement. And once he got them in the basement, he had Mr. Clutter on the floor, but he noticed that it looked uncomfortable. And that's when he actually got the mattress box and put it under Mr. Clutter so he would be more comfortable, which is interesting because if you remember, the investigators noticed that Mr. Clutter was on this mattress box and it made them think possibly that the killer was someone who knew them or it was personal but it was actually neither one of those things. Then Perry took Kenyon and he tied him up by a water heater, but he said that that also looked uncomfortable, so he changed where he was and put him on the couch. Then Perry goes back upstairs and he takes Nancy Clutter and puts her in her bedroom and ties her up and takes Mrs. Clutter and ties her up in her bedroom. And it's heartbreaking the entire time Mrs. Clutter is asking her not to hurt her family, not to hurt her family. And you notice that they're all worried about other members of the family. They don't care about themselves. Nancy keeps telling her to take care of her mother. Kenyon's calling over to his dad and asking if he's okay. This really was the nicest family. And I swear to God, it's like you're sitting there watching the movie thinking you can maybe will the movie to end differently. Yeah. 
And you'll notice that while Perry is busy tying up the clutters and moving them to different parts of the house, Dick is still kind of searching around the house for any money or this fucking safe that doesn't exist. And at one point he goes down into the basement and he starts having a conversation with Kenyon Clutter because he sees this chest that's sitting in the basement in the process of being varnished and he's asking what it is. What's this? A casket. Hope chest. It's a wedding present for my sister. Yeah? Not her. She's too young. They're never too young, kid. And this conversation did not really happen between Dick and Kenyon Clutter, but it's basically foreshadowing for some information that we're about to learn about Dick. Because after he says this to Kenyon Clutter, he continues searching. And even Perry, once he's tied up everybody, he kind of starts searching around the house too. And you notice that as they both are searching throughout the house, Dick is kind of watching Perry. And at one point, Perry goes downstairs away from the bedrooms where the women are, and Dick goes upstairs. And when Perry comes back up, he sees that Dick is trying to rape Nancy Clutter. And neither the book or the movie really touch on this like I think it probably should have been touched on. But Dick was a pedophile. He likes little girls. And one of the reasons he wanted to go to the Clutter house was so that he could rape Nancy Clutter. In fact, even when Dick and Perry first arrived at the Clutter house, Dick was also starting to get cold feet. But he wanted to go in because he wanted to try and rape Nancy. But when Perry sees what Dick is doing to Nancy, he shuts that shit down immediately and makes Dick leave the room. What's leading you to? You find find the safe? Later. First, I'm going to bust that little girl. Nope. What do you care? You can bust her too. No. And Perry claims that this really did happen and he really did stop Dick from touching Nancy. And he actually told Dick that he'd have to kill him before he raped her or touched her. So after Perry catches Dick in Nancy's room, Perry sends Dick to go search the rest of the house for any more money. And he stays in Nancy's room to make sure that Dick will not come in there. And you can tell that Perry is still fuming. We even hear him say, I despise people who can't control themselves. And Perry really did say this in his recount of everything that happened, that people who cannot control themselves sexually make him absolutely uncontrollably angry. And I'm not trying to say this to say that Perry is a good person or anything, but I think what's important about this scene is that this really, really angered Perry. And he already was angry and stressed out at the fact that Dick brought him to this house and there's no fucking safe in it. So we're seeing his stress level and his anger starting to build while they're in the house. Right. So while Perry is in Nancy's room trying to make sure that Dick does not come in there, he actually starts talking to Nancy a little bit and he asks her about school. You go to school? The university next year to study music and art. I play the guitar. Draw some, too. And he happens to see that she's got some stuff about horses on her desk. And so he asks her if she likes horses. You like horses? Yes. My mother was a champion rider in a rodeo. And my father...
my father. And, of course, with the memory of his mother comes the memory of his father. And they're just very lingering memories. It's nothing to make him upset. But then he sees a silver dollar on the desk as well, and he picks it up and he drops it. So Perry goes and chases after the silver dollar that's dropped, and he's on all fours looking for it on the ground. And remember that Perry was in a car accident and has fucked up legs, so this was really, really painful for him. And as he's looking for this silver dollar, he can also hear Dick throughout the house tapping on all the walls like a maniac looking for the safe that does not exist. And it's in this moment where Perry's in pain on all fours looking for a 16-year-old silver dollar and he hears Dick acting crazy that he runs out of Nancy's room and you can see that he's starting to kind of lose it. And when Perry runs out of Nancy's room, he doesn't have any real direction he's going, but he runs into Dick and Dick can see that he's freaking out. What's the matter? We're the matter. We're ridiculous. You tapping the walls for a safe that isn't there. Tap, tap, tap on like some nutty woodpecker. And me, crawling around on the floor with my legs on fire. And all to steal a kid's silver dollar. And then Perry starts suddenly running down towards where the basement is. And again, just like when he ran out of Nancy's room, it seems like he doesn't have any planned destination. He's just going somewhere and it happens to be down in the basement. And it also kind of seems like he's starting to not understand what's going on or something. And Dick is following him. Now, this movie version is slightly different than what Perry said happened, according to the book. He really was talking to Nancy and telling her about his family. And he really did find a silver dollar and drop it. And it became really painful for him trying to, like, scoop it up, along with scooping up all the other change that they were finding, like, under the couches and stuff. And Dick also really was tapping on the walls and it was driving him crazy. But by the time they got down to the basement, it was because they were having to decide whether or not they were going to kill the clutters or not. And Perry said that he took Dick into a corner to talk about it before they made any decision. And from this point on, the movie is going to continue to make it seem like Perry is completely losing touch with reality and that it's only going to get worse while they're in the clutter house. We see in the movie that Perry's starting to hallucinate. And instead of seeing Dick standing in front of him with a flashlight, he sees his father with a gun pointed at him, telling him, Look at me, boy. And then Perry runs into the area of the basement where Mr. Clutter is, almost like he's running away from where Dick is standing, not necessarily that he was going towards Mr. Clutter, but once he gets there, he sees him down on the ground, and you see the screen changing between images of Mr. Clutter on the ground and images of Perry's dad, like Perry is having flashes in and out of reality, and it's at this point that Perry, almost in a fit of rage and confusion and maybe even fear, grabs Mr. Clutter and cuts his throat. Now, in reality, Perry said that after he took Dick into the corner in the basement when they were trying to decide whether or not they should kill the clutters, Dick was still saying that he wanted to have the clutters killed, but he was also being very hesitant about having Perry or himself actually going and doing it. 
So Perry was going to call his bluff and told him to give him the knife that he had been using for cutting rope and said that he was going to go and kill Mr. Clutter, but he never planned on actually doing it. He was just waiting for Dick to tell him to stop at the last second. But as he was walking over and he knelt down towards Mr. Clutter, this is when he seemed to lose touch with reality and he started thinking about the silver dollar that he dropped and how much pain he had in his legs. And this is when the anger or the fear or whatever was happening in his head overcame him. And he said he didn't even realize that he had cut Mr. Clutter's throat until he heard him screaming. Meanwhile, tough guy Big Dick, in both reality and in the movie, is just standing over to the side watching what Perry has just done and cannot move. And Perry actually handed him the knife after he cut Mr. Clutter's throat and told Dick to finish him, but Dick could not do it. So Perry told him to hold a flashlight, and that is when Perry shot Mr. Clutter in the head and then walked over and shot Kenyon Clutter in the head as well. Then the two men go upstairs and they shoot Nancy Clutter and then Bonnie Clutter last. And it's never been totally clear who shot who. Dick in his confession says that Perry shot both of them. Perry initially said that Dick shot both of the women, but then he later wanted to change his statement to say that it was him. And after Perry gave his oral confession, he actually told Al Dewey that he would not sign a written statement until it changed to show that he shot the two women. But Al Dewey would not let him sign a statement that said that because he didn't believe that that was true. And later, Perry did claim that Dick was the one who shot those two women, but he felt bad for Dick's mother because he had met her while he was in prison. So he wanted to take the blame off of him. The movie actually shows an interesting version of events. It shows Perry running upstairs with the gun and going into the room where Nancy Clutter is and we hear a gunshot. Then we see both Dick and Perry go into Bonnie Clutter's room and we hear a shot, but we do not see who is holding the gun or who pulls the trigger. And just a side note, if it sounds weird that the investigator would not let Perry make a new statement, that's because it is. That's very weird to me. Yeah. Even if it was different than what he said before, you could still impeach him if you needed to, but... Al Dewey said no. Then after you hear that last shot in the clutter house, you're taken back to the car with Perry Smith, Al Dewey, and Investigator Dunce all driving to Kansas. And every time I am just always so shocked and I think a little startled at how fast those murders happened and how almost unexpected they were. And Perry finishes up his confession with a little statement at the end that I think really perfectly sums up his feelings, but also the feelings of the viewer. Doesn't make sense. What happened? Or why? It had nothing to do with the clutters. They never heard me. They just happened to be there. I thought Mr. Clutter was a very nice gentleman. I thought so right up to the time I cut his throat. And now that we've been taken on this clusterfuck of a roller coaster ride with these murders, the movie actually goes straight to the trial of Dick and Perry, and it specifically goes to the closing arguments where we see the prosecutor speaking. And from a movie standpoint, I totally understand why they did this. We've just been through this very intense scene. But I do want to go over Dick and Perry's attempt to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. And I'm not doing this to make anybody sympathize with Dick and Perry. They did what they did, and they certainly deserved to go to prison. But probably the biggest question in this movie is, why did they do this? And I think the defendant's attempt to use the insanity defense was, to a certain extent, their way of explaining this why in the courtroom. Right. 
After Dick and Perry were arrested, they were pretty immediately given court-appointed attorneys. Perry's attorney was a guy named Arthur Fleming, and Dick's attorney was a guy named Harrison Smith. On the other side, the district attorney actually hired a special prosecutor by the name of Logan Green. And a special prosecutor is basically an attorney that is hired to work on a specific case by the county DA. And it can be done for a number of reasons. Usually it is because the DA may have a conflict of interest or if it's a really big case in a very small county that doesn't really have the capacity to handle it. And after Dick and Perry's lawyers were appointed, they pretty quickly went to the judge and they requested that both of their clients be given a comprehensive psychological evaluation. And both of the attorneys cited in their requests that the reason they wanted these evaluations done was to ascertain, and I am quoting here, please know I am quoting, whether their clients were insane, imbeciles, or idiots unable to comprehend their position or aid in the defense. Y'all, I know, it was the 60s in Kansas. Everything was problematic. But in slightly less offensive terms, these attorneys were requesting this evaluation because they were trying to see, number one, if their clients were competent to stand trial, and number two, to see if any evidence was found during this evaluation that supported that their clients were legally insane. And we've talked about the insanity defense before when we watched the movie Foxcatcher, but we didn't go into much detail. I think I just gave a very basic definition. So I'm going to go a little bit deeper here. First of all, it's important to note that there are a few different legal rules or ways to determine if a person is legally insane. The way courts determine which rule they're going to follow is by what state they're in. The state is going to adopt which legal rule they want to use. And in Kansas in 1960, they used the McNaughton rule. And the definition for insanity under the McNaughton rule is that at the time of the criminal act, mental illness rendered the defendant incapable of understanding the quality or nature of their actions. In other words, a mental illness has made it where you don't understand what you're doing. Or at the time of the criminal act, a mental illness rendered the defendant incapable of knowing that what they were doing was wrong. In other words, you know what you're doing, but a mental illness has made it where you don't understand that what you're doing is wrong. And circling back to these defense attorneys that had this request for psychiatric evaluations for both of their clients, the attorneys were specifically requesting that both Dick and Perry be transferred down to a maximum security mental facility in Larned, Kansas, in another part of the state, so that both Dick and Perry could be evaluated by doctors that were specially trained to do these types of psychological evaluations, because there were no doctors in the county that had any special training in psychiatry. And Dick Hickok's attorney even went down to this mental facility and explain the situation to them and they were more than willing to do it and it wasn't going to cost the county any money. The only thing was that once Dick and Perry were transferred down there, it could take up to four to eight weeks. And as soon as these attorneys were done requesting this, Logan Green, the special prosecutor, jumped up saying he did not want this to happen. And his argument to the court was that nowhere in the Kansas law did it say that the person doing the evaluation had to have any sort of special training. It just said it had to be a physician. He also said that by sending them down there, it was is going to be a waste of time. What Green wasn't telling the judge is that he knew where this was going. He knew that not only were they trying to get an insanity defense, but they were also trying to see if they could succeed in an affirmative defense of temporary insanity. And he was one of those prosecutors that did not like psychiatrists. And at some point, he complained, saying something along the lines of these expert witnesses for the defense are always crying for the defendants and don't care about the victims, which drives me nuts. They're just doing their fucking job, just like you're doing your fucking job. 
And unfortunately for Dick and Perry, this judge was the type of lawyer that goes strictly by the text of the law. He's not one to experiment or interpret outside of it. So when Logan Green made the argument that the Kansas law doesn't say anything about it needing to be any sort of special psychiatrist, he immediately said that any physician in their county could do. And he didn't deny the motion completely, but he denied them being transferred to the state hospital. And instead, he appointed three doctors in the county to evaluate them. And when these doctors evaluated them, they interviewed Dick and Perry for about an hour each. And at the end of these interviews, they all determined that neither Dick nor Perry suffered from any mental disorders. And according to the law, if Dick and Perry don't suffer from any mental disorder or some form of cognitive incapacity, then they don't suffer from anything that would make it where they would not know the difference between right and wrong. Needless to say, Dick and Perry's attorneys were pissed off by this. Dick's attorney was so mad that he went down to the state hospital and basically just asked, was there any psychiatrist that would be willing to come down to Garden City, where the county seat was, and evaluate Dick and Perry for free? And by the grace of God, there was someone. It was a guy named Dr. Mitchell Jones, and he was a specialist in criminal psychology and the criminally insane. So thank God for this man. So Dr. Jones did come down to Garden City and he did do an evaluation on both Dick and Perry. And he also did this in a very fast period of time. Like I'm talking, he was talking to Perry and having him write out an autobiography while they were picking the jury. So they gave them no time to do this, which is unheard of today. And the short answer in both of these evaluations was, I need more fucking time. Yeah. Now, on Dick's evaluation, Dr. Jones said that he believed that Dick did know right from wrong. So if he knows right from wrong, a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity is going to fail. However, Dick's attorneys could still use the evidence gathered from a more extensive evaluation for purposes of sentencing, meaning it would help when determining whether or not he was going to get sentenced to life in prison or death. And Dr. Jones pointed out that he did show signs of a severe character disorder. And there was a possibility that he had organic brain damage as a result of that car accident that he was in so many years ago where his personality changed, but he would need to take him down to that hospital in order to figure that out. Then with Perry, Dr. Jones said that at this point, he could not form an opinion as to whether or not Perry knew right from wrong. So basically, his answer to this yes or no question was, I don't know. And in his evaluation, he elaborated that Perry did show signs of severe mental illness. He had a pretty brutal childhood and he didn't have much direct when he was growing up, he appeared to be very paranoid and he was very distrustful of people. Additionally, Dr. Jones noted that when Perry interacted with people, he had a tendency to not be able to distinguish between his own mental projections of what was going on and actual reality. And he concluded saying that he was pretty sure that Perry suffered from what at the time was called paranoid schizophrenic reaction. But he, again, needed to take Perry down to the state hospital to do a more extensive diagnosis. And additionally, in the the case for both Dick and Perry, Dr. Jones actually consulted with another person that I mentioned earlier, which was Dr. Joseph Satan. And he was the author of that case study, Murder Without the Parent Motive, which hypothesized that in addition to sane murderers that are rational and act under rational motives and insane murderers that are irrational and act under senseless motives, there's actually a third form of murderer that was generally rational and coherent in personality, but committed homicidal acts that were completely senseless and had no motive. And Dr. Satan believed that Perry could actually fall under this category. And that information wouldn't necessarily help Perry with an insanity defense at that point because it could not be determined whether 
or not he had a mental disease, Dr. Jones needed more time to evaluate him and determine that. So again, Dr. Jones needs more fucking time. But our judge in this case, who follows the law to a T and does not like to deviate from it, says, no, you got your evaluation. You're good. We're starting this trial. And what this means for Dr. Jones is he is severely limited in how he can testify. So when Dr. Jones is called to the stand in Dick's case, he answers questions about his background to qualify him as an expert. Then he's asked if he ever has examined Dick Hickok as an expert. And when he answers yes to this, he is then asked, based on his examination, does he have an opinion as to whether or not Dick Hickok knew right from wrong at the time of the crime? And Dr. Jones can answer yes to this. And then when they ask him, what is that opinion, Dr. Jones can only say that he did know right from wrong, and then he's cut off. He cannot give any more of an elaboration other than that. Dick Hickok knew right from wrong. He is sane. End of story. Then when Dr. Jones is called to the stand for Perry Smith, he is able to answer those same qualifying questions. Then when he is asked if he was able to form an opinion on whether or not Perry knew right from wrong at the time of the crime, he has to answer no. And when the defense attorneys ask him to elaborate, the Prosecutor jumps up, says, nope, can't do that. Letter of the law. We just get yes or no. And the judge agrees with the prosecutor. So he cannot even elaborate as to why he does not have an opinion. And when Dr. Jones was done with this testimony, everybody basically knew what the outcome of this trial was going to be because it was really a matter of are they going to get hung or are they not? But Prosecutor Logan Green still feels the need to drag this out and put every piece of evidence possible up there. And really, for me, that's fine. I get it. I've been in that same situation. You're just doing your job. However, let's now go back to the movie and listen to Logan Green's closing argument, because there is one part of that that I am not okay with. Mercy for them. The killers. How fortunate that their admirable attorneys were not present at the clutter home that fateful evening. How very fortunate for them that they were not there to plead mercy for the doomed family, because otherwise we would have found their corpses too. Don't do that. Do not shit on a defense attorney because they're just doing their job. I get it. They killed people, but the attorneys did not kill these people and they were appointed to represent them. So stop being an asshole. Now, to be fair, Logan Green was actually a very well-known attorney, and a lot of attorneys actually came from all over Kansas to watch him because he was so good, and the rest of his closing argument was good. Gentlemen, four of your neighbors were slaughtered like hogs in a pen by them. They did not strike suddenly in the heat of passion, but for money. They did not kill in vengeance. They planned it for money. And how cheaply those lives were bought. So once Logan Green finishes his closing argument, we start getting a narrator throughout the rest of the movie. And it's actually Bill Jensen. And right now, we're looking at the courtroom and we are hearing about the results of the trial. It took four hours to pick the jury. It took the state three days to present its case. It took the defense one hour and a half. It took the jury 40 minutes to bring in the verdict. And we also hear voiceovers from three of the jurors that sat on this trial. They had to be crazy. No, 
may be stupid, but perfectly sane. How can a perfectly sane man commit an absolutely crazy act? I have some fun facts. Apparently, it's the actual courtroom where the court case happened, and six of the jurors in the movie were actual jurors on the freaking case, which is insane to me that you would then be like, I mean, I guess Truman Capote is a big deal, so you like want to be in the movie, but I feel like it would just be, the whole thing would be traumatizing to have to be on that jury and then like go again. That's shocking. Yeah. So from there, Dick and Perry are taken to prison on death row. And again, for some reason, for the last 10 minutes of the movie, Bill Jensen is narrating and he gives us a little bit of information about where Dick and Perry are. Perry and Dick began their waiting in the S&I building. Security and isolation. The second floor is death row. And we also get their execution date. Perry and Dick have a date at the corner. One minute after midnight, May, Friday the 13th. And that execution date went, and that's not unusual at all, because people who are on death row automatically get an appeal. So typically that first date is going to be moved. It's probably going to be moved several times. And that was also the case for Dick and Perry. And you'll also notice at this point that Bill Jensen is actually at the prison visiting with Dick. And this is also something that Truman Capote did. He, for a while, would go and visit Dick and Perry on death row. And Dick and Truman Capote got along pretty well, but Dick generally got along with everybody. Perry, however, was usually very much a loner, but randomly him and Truman Capote became very close. And the reason for that was Truman Capote described Perry as someone who was just like him when he was younger, and they both just went down different paths as they grew up. So they formed a very special bond. And as the execution dates for Dick and Perry kept being extended, and Truman Capote was waiting and waiting to publish his book until after they died, this started to really bother Perry, just on a personal level. It also bothered Dick because he wanted it published, and he actually attempted to get his own book published, but Truman Capote managed to stop it. And Ultimately, this ethical dilemma that Capote kind of put himself in sort of took over him and he stopped going to visit Dick and Perry and he stopped writing them letters. We don't see that with Bill Jensen in the movie. And then we learn... Perry and Dick waited five years. Three times their case went to the United States Supreme Court. Perry and Dick waited five years on death row before it was time for them to be executed. And as we learn this, we see that Dick is being driven over to the corner and he is about to be read his warrant before he is executed. Richard, this is a warrant from the Supreme Court of the state of Kansas. Whereas it was by this court ordered that execution of the sentence of death by hanging of Richard Eugene Hickok imposed by the District Court of Finney County, Kansas be carried out on Wednesday, April 14th, 1965. And in the documentary I watched, it had one of the correctionals officers that worked on death row when Dick and Perry were there. And what's interesting is because they were there all the time with them, they kind of got to know him. So it got really hard for them when these people were executed. And they said that when Dick was brought over to the corner, he was fine until they put the harness on him. And then he went really pale white. And then after a second, he shook it off and he seemed to be okay. Meanwhile, in the movie, we go over to Perry and he is freaking the fuck out. He's got his harness on, and all of a sudden he tells the guards that he's got to go to the bathroom. I got to go to the toilet. We can't remove the harness. There might not be time. 
please. Try to control yourself. But that's it. When you hit the end of the rope, your muscles lose control. I'm afraid I'll mess myself. It's nothing to be ashamed of. They all do it. And the guards are being such assholes, they won't let him take off the harness to the point that the reverend who's standing in the background is like, for fuck's sake, let him go to the bathroom. The sentence is death, not death and shit everywhere. (laughs) So the guards do actually take off his harness and let him go to the bathroom. But actually, this whole harness thing with Perry and needing to go to the bathroom did not really happen. And actually, Perry was really not that nervous. He was pretty calm the entire time. Then we go back to the corner and Dick's execution warrant has finished being read. And we see that Al Dewey and Bill Jensen are both at the execution. And we actually get a pretty good look at the executioner, the guy that pulls the rope when the prisoners are hanged. And interestingly enough, Bill Jensen asks, Is he the, uh, mm-hmm. How much does he get paid to hang him? $300 a man. Has he got a name? We the people. And I talk about this a little bit more when I get to the reactions to the movie, but I really like how this movie adds in, especially at the end, all of these little things that really make you think, like this executioner and what he's paid and how much he's paid and what he's paid to do. And then Dick says his last words, and these are actually the words that he said. Just that I hold no hard feelings. You're sending me to a better world than this ever was. Nice to see you. And we watch Dick going up the stairs up to the trap door, and we see the trap door open from a distance, but we don't really get a good look. But one thing that I found interesting is that in the movie, it's raining really hard. And the corrections officer that I saw in this documentary interview commented that it really was raining that hard. And when the trap door was opened for Dick when he was executed, there was a huge clap of thunder. So it was like very jarring. And after that trapdoor was released, Dick Hickok hung for 20 minutes before he was pronounced dead. And we go immediately after we see him drop to Perry, and he's asking for Dick. Dick gone? Is his heart still beating? Which was a pretty dramatic moment for the movie, but in reality, Dick and Perry were no longer communicating once they went up into prison. So Perry only knew that Dick was officially gone when he was taken out to be executed because they executed them in alphabetical order. But before Perry is brought over, he's still in his cell with the Reverend Post, and we get probably one of the best accidental scenes ever when Perry is talking to Reverend Post about his relationship with his father. And Grace, you had never seen it, so you you have to tell you have to talk talk about it yeah we get this amazing cinematography which i found out was a complete accident but harry's telling this story and it's raining outside and the reflection of the rain is on his face and so it it looks like tears coming down his face but he's holding it all inside but the rain is showing all the tears fall down his face basically and apparently this was like a complete accident the cinematographer conrad hall said that they were doing the shot they like it's fake rain and like a wind machine to have it against the window and then they saw how it reflected on his face and we were like oh that's amazing but like they didn't think to do that it just like happened and then it's like this masterful moment i'm like because when i saw it i was like oh my god i have to talk about that and then when i researched it and found out it was a happy accident i was like 
no there's too many like coincidences in all of this and it really really looks like he's crying and it's so perfect because he's talking about his relationship with his father and he's basically explaining what that hallucination was or that vision was that he was seeing right before he killed herb clutter and we learn that when perry was a child his dad actually pointed and shot a gun at him but the gun wasn't loaded and his father didn't realize he started yelling what a greedy selfish bastard i was Yelling and yelling till I grabbed his throat. I couldn't stop myself. He tore loose, got a gun. He said, look at me, boy. Take a good look, because I'm the last living thing you're ever going to see. And he pulled the trigger. So basically, his father tried to kill him and then abandoned him. I went for a long walk. When I got back, the place was dark. The door was locked. All my stuff was piled outside in the snow where he threw it. I walked away and never looked back. And it's almost like this is the catalyst or this is the thing that Perry remembers and it sticks in his mind is the moment where he went from having a happy childhood with two parents to an abusive childhood, an unstable childhood, an alcoholic mother, an absent father, abusive nuns when he had to stay with other people and all this other trauma that arguably contributed to some crucial turning points and decisions in Perry's life, some that he could control and some that he couldn't control. And in the end, led him to this moment that is his execution. Yeah. Now, I will say about the real story, Perry was much more hardened by the time of his execution. He was not as, I don't know how to put it, he was not always on the verge of tears like the Perry in the movie is. (laughs) That's the best way I know how to explain that. And now Perry is finally taken to the corner. And you will notice that Al Dewey and Bill Jensen are still there. And although Truman Capote did stay for Dick Hickok, he could not bear to stay for Perry Smith's. He had become too close with him and he ultimately had to leave. And even when he was at Dick Hickok's, he clearly had been crying and he had been drinking. So Bill Jensen being there is not exactly accurate, but he does make a comment which echoes Truman Capote's sentiments about the death penalty. For innocent. Two guilty people murdered. Three families broken. Newspapers have sold more papers. Politicians will make more speeches. Police and parole boards will get more blame. More laws will be passed. Everybody will pass the buck. And then, next month, next year, same thing will happen again. Maybe this will help to stop it. Never have. Then we hear Perry's execution warrant. Perry, this is a warrant from the Supreme Court of the state of Kansas. It was by this court ordered that execution of the sentence of death by hanging of Perry Edward Smith, imposed by the District Court of Finney County, Kansas, be carried out on Wednesday, April 14th, 1965. And after that, his last words. Anything you want to say? Perry? I think maybe I'd like to apologize. But who to? 
And these really were his last words. But in the documentary that I watched, the corrections officer said that unlike Perry in the movie, Perry in real life got very hardened when they were reading his warrant to him. And he almost seemed a little bit angry when he said those last words. He didn't seem as scared. And in real life, Perry went up to the trap door and it happened very fast. Now, in the movie, this scene of Perry's execution is one of the most tense scenes I've ever seen. I cannot not hold my breath when I watch it. (laughs) Like I mentioned earlier, the Perry in the movie is much more visibly scared at this moment, right before he's about to go up to the trap door. And as he's making his way up to the trap door, you suddenly start hearing a very low heartbeat. And then you realize as Perry gets closer to the trap door, the beat is getting faster and it's getting louder. And Perry is visibly getting more tense. And at one point, Perry actually turns and looks at the executioner and he sees his father's face. And that heartbeat is just getting louder. And then we have a straight on shot of Perry. And then all of a sudden that trap door opens and he falls. And that heartbeat slows until it's completely quiet. And then the screen goes black and it's over. That's it. They show a title screen for the movie one more time, but there's no credits and it just, it ends. And I was even watching this with my husband and he looked over at me and he was like, wait, that's it? It's over? And I was like, yeah, that's it. (laughs) Emotional roller coaster. At the end, you're like, well, that was depressing. And then like, even at the end of us talking about it, I'm like, I feel like, uh, I need to go watch something funny after this. (laughs) So now that we've gotten through that, let's all take a deep breath and talk about some reactions to the movie. In Cold Blood was nominated for four Academy Awards. The nominations that the movie did receive were Best Director, Best Original Score, which we talked about earlier. The person that wrote the score was Quincy Jones. Best Cinematography. And the winner of that category was actually Bonnie and Clyde. And I really don't agree with that. I think that In Cold Blood was better. And Best Adapted Screenplay. The movie also received primarily positive reviews by critics. And one of my favorite quotes by a critic was by Bosley Crowther of the New York Times. And he called the film an excellent excellent quasi-documentary which sends shivers down the spine while moving the viewer to ponder. And I thought that was so perfect for explaining this movie because I really think that this movie is a great example of showing the good, the bad, and the ugly of both sides of the criminal justice system. Obviously, these guys get the death penalty. So if you are for the death penalty, that's fine. It lets you see that, but it's also letting you see to a certain extent the lack of humanity in what happens when someone is executed and kind of the question of whether are two wrongs really making a right in that case. Right. At the same time, if you are not for the death penalty, then you are seeing just how cruel these two men were when they murdered the Clutter family for absolutely no reason. And we hear Perry Smith saying that he even liked Mr. Clutter right up until he cut his throat. And you see that he has absolutely no remorse for it. And is this guy sitting in jail for the rest of his life? Is that really justice either? So it really makes you see both sides of this and consider what is the right thing to do in this situation? And is there a right thing? Yeah. And this leads me into some of the negative criticisms that the movie got. And it mainly was that the victims were featured very little in this movie. And instead, the defendants were featured quite a bit. And this sympathy that was garnered towards them was increased. Mm -hmm. I think there's another reason why Brooks chose to focus so much on Dick and Perry and what Dick and Perry were doing and focus less on the clutters. And it goes back to the fact that Brooks the director wanted this to be a quasi-documentary. And at least in my 
experience, and not everybody is going to agree with this, I think when you look at a trial, the focus is primarily on the defendant. It's not so much on the victim. Yeah, it has to be. And I'm not saying that's a good thing, but the point of a trial is to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant in question did do the thing that you're accusing them of. So it is very centrally focused on them. And it same goes with the investigation. You have to bring in evidence that will show at a trial what the defendant did. Right. Now, that's not to say that the victims never come into play. Their stories do to a certain extent because they are the people that this happened to. But I think the reality is it's much less than what people assume. I will say that the movie does create a lot of sympathy, particularly for Perry Smith, that I don't think really existed. But I think that the reason the movie did this is because I think that the director wanted the viewer to feel some of the feelings that Truman Capote, as the writer of that book, felt when he was getting to know these two defendants, particularly Perry. Yeah. Now, when you watch the movie and you see the character of Bill Jensen, that's supposed to kind of be the Truman Capote-like character, and when you read the book... Capote's personal opinions are not in there. And he did that on purpose. He did not want his voice to be in there. He wanted an omnipresent narrative voice creating this novel. But the reality was, like we mentioned earlier, Capote getting to know Dick and Perry greatly affected him. And the fact that he had to wait until they were executed to publish the book also greatly affected him. And I think that Richard Brooks wanted the viewer to feel those feelings of being with these people for so long and then ultimately seeing them die the way Capote did, even though that may not have been the goal of Capote in his book. Right. And this criticism about the movie in terms of whether or not it created sympathy towards Dick and Perry brings up another negative criticism of both the movie and also the book. And that has to do with their factual accuracy. Now, this criticism was mainly geared towards the book, but because the movie was based off of the book and it so closely is tied to the book and how the screenplay was written, it also applies to that. So I'm going to talk about that as well. The questions of factual accuracy in In Cold Blood has been up for debate for years. And I actually found an article that was published on March 20th of 2013, written by Ben Yagoda, and it's called Fact Checking in Cold Blood. And it basically explains that part of the reason there's potential issues with the facts in the book has to do with how fact checking was done at that time. The person that was doing the fact checking for Truman Capote was a guy named Sandy Campbell. And what he primarily was checking was confirming things like dates and distances and spellings. When it came to certain conversations that were had, like, for example, if there were conversations that were had in the book between Dick and Perry, he did not actually go to Dick and Perry and speak with them and confirm that these conversations happened. And then there were also some instances where there were conversations had between two people in the book that we could never find out if they really happened. For example, there's some conversations that go on that happened between Kenyon Clutter and Nancy Clutter, and they were both dead by the time Truman Capote got there. No one could confirm those happened. So they clearly were some form of narration that were fictionalized by Truman Capote. Ultimately, I think he did take some liberties with the storytelling aspects. I think there are some fictionalized conversations, but that doesn't surprise me. I never questioned that that happened. Yeah. I mean, it's obvious, especially with the conversations with the people that were dead that Capote never met. But in no way, for me at least, does that compromise the integrity of the entire book. 
I don't know how much of this is true. I found a Wall Street Journal article that said that while he was on death row, Dick actually wrote a manuscript for his own book, but it was suppressed and never came out. And they're saying it was because everyone was working to get Capote's book to be like the only account. And in Dick's account, he actually claims that it was a hired hit and that someone paid them to kill the clutters. But a psychiatrist read it and said that they really don't believe that they were paid to do it. And then I found another one where this theory had been made known to the KBI before, but it never really came out. And so there's like kind of all this conspiracy stuff as to like, were they containing what information came out because it was not true and didn't matter? Or were they containing what information came out because it wasn't what Truman Capote wrote in his book? I knew a story that Dick Hickok had tried to get a book deal along with a writer that was going to make a book with him by the name of Mike Nations, but I didn't realize that there was a totally different story that he was going to say that included contract killers. I will say that I know that it had been speculated for quite a while that the Clutters could have been killed by contract killers, so the fact that that was already out in the news makes me question whether that's true or not, but that's definitely quite the conspiracy. Yeah. Really, no matter what your feelings are on the factual accuracy of the book, the fact of the matter remains that it was a massive of success. And it was really, like we said at the very beginning of the show, the birthplace of true crime. And it was also a massive success for Truman Capote financially, and it became a national bestseller for him. However, he never really recovered from writing this book. He never wrote another novel again. And he would later say in an interview that if he had known what was going to happen when he wrote this book and went through the process of writing it, he would have never gone to Kansas. Mm-hmm. And Capote also explained that it wasn't so much the writing of the book, but finishing the book. And we've stated this many times now. It all had to do with the fact that he was waiting for them to be executed. And he was a big drinker before, but his drinking got increasingly worse after he finished the book and he started using drugs. And actually, in July of 1978, Capote was doing an interview on Stanley Siegel's live television show, and Siegel told him that he needed to stop drinking and using so much or it was going to kill him. And Capote said, I'm going to eventually kill myself anyway. Like, he did not care. And that is really what happened to him. Six years later, in 1984, he died at the age of 59 of liver failure. And I know that Capote was the author of the book. He was not the director or writer of the movie. He didn't star in the movie in any way. But the reason I talked so much about him in relation to the reactions to the movie is just because it was the originality in this book that made this movie possible. Otherwise, nobody really would have known about this story from a town with 270 people in it. So I think it's worth noting just how greatly the making of the book and ultimately what would create the movie impacted Truman Capote. And finally, in 2008, the film was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. And that is the story and the movie in Cold Blood. Uh, I need to go watch something funny after this. (laughs) All right, what are we doing next time, Grace? Next week, we're doing Molly's Game, which would be a good change of pace. Oh, yeah, this one's different. This one is uh, Poker Ring, so no murder death next week. That'll be good. And Michael Sarah is in this, and he is the bad guy, so that should be interesting. Yeah, and we've got Idris Elba in it, too. I do very much enjoy Idris Elba, so (laughs) I will be looking forward to that. 
All right, guys, thank you so much for listening this week. Thank you to Maddie for making this request. If you would like to make a request, you can do so at our website, crimescenespodcast.com, or you can send us a DM on any of our social medias, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We are at Crime Scenes Pod. If you would like to show us some love or some support, you can do so through buymeacoffee.com slash crimescenespod, or you can, again, go to our website or the link in bio at our Instagram. And don't forget, we also have merch. That is on our website as well. And once again, go to that link in bio in our Instagram at Crime Scenes Pod. And that is pretty much everything I got. Thank you so much, guys, for listening. We will see you next week. We love you. Bye. Thanks, guys. Bye. It would be death by hanging. So there's a corner in the prison with the... I don't know what it's called. What is that thing called? The place where they will be hung, hanged. And he's like, I can't hold it when I'm dead. I'm going to shit everywhere. And they're like, it's nothing to be ashamed of. I just, shut up, fuck you. It was just, I don't know. I don't know how to explain this. It just sucked. As it ended, I was watching it with my husband and it just goes blank and he goes, that's it? Yeah. Are there no credits? What's happening? And I was like, that's it, dude. Like, we're done. He's like, well, that was a lot. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. This movie's amazing, if we haven't said it enough. (laughs)